All right, this morning I've titled the, the sermon, The Lord's Prayer, but it's not what you're thinking. The Lord's Prayer that's found in the Sermon on the Mount um, that Jesus teaches the disciples that we're all familiar with, says, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I want to suggest to you this morning that that's actually not the Lord's Prayer. It's a prayer that he taught his disciples, and I think should be called the Disciples' Prayer. When you think about it, Jesus didn't need to pray that prayer. He never needed to say, Father, forgive us. He was sinless. He was perfect. It was a prayer that he gave them to pray. I think that the real Lord's Prayer is found in John 17, and I want you to turn there now. When Doak asked me to preach a few weeks ago, I began to think about what to share. And prayer is something that's been on my heart um, for recent months and something that uh, was highlighted during the summer. And I'll tell you a bit more about that at the end. But as I was thinking about John 17, um, as I was thinking about prayer, John 17 came to mind. It's often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And I thought to myself, I know exactly where I'm going to go with this. Um, I noticed, had noticed two particular things that Jesus mentions in the prayer that he prays for. And I thought, this is going to be my focus for the morning. Um, well, as I've been preparing this week, um, I realized early on that I had bitten off way more than I could chew. Um, this prayer is so rich and so deep, and there's so much involved in it. In fact, in some of the research that I did, I, I've found out that John MacArthur actually preached for eight weeks on this one chapter. Um, so needless to say, I had to narrow my focus a bit. And so this morning, I want to share with you some things that I've learned um, as I've studied and as, as I've read. Um, before we do that, I want to read the whole chapter together, and then we'll focus our attention primarily on the last half of the chapter. So if you would read with me, John chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the Son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, 
but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, Even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you this morning asking that you would open our hearts, open our ears to hear what your spirit would have to say. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this particular chapter that gives us such an intimate look at the relationship that God the Father has with God the Son. Lord, as we look at this this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Oh God, my rock and my redeemer, it's in the precious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. All right. Let's look at some background on this first. Um, Let's talk about where the prayer fits into the grand scheme of things. Give it some context. Back in chapter 14, if you go back a couple of chapters in the book of John. Sorry, that's not right. Chapter 12. Chapter 12, we find the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. This marks the beginning of what we call the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. All right, so background, chapter 12, as I mentioned, is the, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem marks the beginning of the Passion Week, which means that a large chunk of the book of John focuses on the last week of the life of Christ, from this point all the way to the end of the, of the book. <clears throat> when we get to verse uh, chapter 13, we find Jesus and the disciples are now in the upper room, They're preparing to celebrate the Passover meal together. And you see this beautiful scene where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's also during this time where he institutes the Lord's Supper, which actually isn't mentioned in the book of John, but we know about it from the other Gospels. And it's during this time Jesus is preparing them for his departure. When we get to chapter 14, we find uh, more teaching about who he is. He declares himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. He promises the Holy Spirit, the one who would come after he leaves. Um, And then he tells the disciples at the end of chapter 14 to rise up. And they leave the upper room and they begin to make their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. On the way, he continues to instruct them about how he's the true vine. I can just imagine they're walking along the road. Maybe they pass a vineyard or something. And he uses that as an illustration to teach them a bit more about 
who he is. He tells them about how the world is going to hate them. He senses their sorrow and he promises that their sorrow will turn to joy because he has overcome the world. And then without warning, he begins to pray. And I can imagine how this might have gone down. They're walking along the road. He's teaching them. Maybe they are dialoguing with him. And before they even realize it, his attention has shifted from them to his father in heaven as he begins to pray. I've got a friend that does this. I remember one time uh, we used to live in the UK. We lived in Cardiff, went to London one time for some training, and we were walking the streets of North London. I remember walking with a guy um, who became a good friend. His name was Steve. And we're just walking along, and he's asking me about how things are going in Cardiff, how ministry is, and I'm telling him about things and some of my frustrations and concerns. And um, without hesitation, he just starts talking to God about, my frustrations and the things that I'm struggling with. Um, He finishes up his brief prayer, and then we're back into dialogue with one another. And it was just a really beautiful thing, and it happened multiple times as we're walking these streets of North London. And um, I I say that to, to you just to share with, that's a desire of mine. I want prayer in my life to be something that is not simply done at a certain time or in a certain place, but it's something that literally is a part of my every moment. That's a desire of mine. That's what I want. So just as a word of warning, if we happen to be out together somewhere and I start talking to God as in the middle of our conversation, you'll understand why I'm doing that. Do it. <laughs> Amen. It's God is always with us, so why shouldn't he be a part of our conversations? So the disciples here, they get this incredible peek into this intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Can you imagine? I mean, what an awesome moment it must have been when they realized he's praying. I mean, can you see him walking along and maybe John elbows Peter and said, be quiet, he's praying. Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a, you know, in a room this size or something and, and somebody's trying to get your attention so that they can pray. And eventually they just start praying. And all of a sudden you just, it's like a wave, you know, a quietness. It starts at the front, moves to the back. And I can just imagine that this, maybe this is what happened. You know, the disciples, all of a sudden, one by one, they realize that he's praying. So this prayer is prayed somewhere between the upper room and then the Garden of Gethsemane as they're making their way there, where Jesus then goes to spend time by himself in prayer. And here's a simple outline of the prayer. Um, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays for himself. We see this, he talks to the Father about glory, and we'll come back to that in a minute. Verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for the ones that God has given them, given him while he was on the earth. And then the last portion of the chapter, verses 20 to 20, sorry, yeah, 20 to 26, Jesus prays for his church. He prays for the ones who would come to know him through the testimony of his disciples. If you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus, that includes you. This includes me. Jesus prayed for us in that moment. So let's hit some highlights before we zero in on a couple of things towards the end. First thing I want to mention to you this morning is the divine community. I see this in this chapter. The whole chapter is an amazing look into the divine community. One God, three persons, and while the Holy Spirit is not mentioned specifically in this chapter, We always have to look at the whole body of Scripture, the mystery of the Trinity, 
that is found throughout the scriptures begins in Genesis, in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis. <coughs> Here in this chapter, we see the Father, we see the Son, the I in you, you in me. This language permeates this chapter. You see it over and over and over again. We are also invited into this divine community. Look at the words Jesus uses in verse 21. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. There's this invitation here to be part of the community of God. There's so much to be said about the importance of community, the church community. We could spend a lot of time here. I could talk to you about the importance of small groups and why, you know, a biblical basis for that and why we see the need for that. Um, that's why we do life groups here at Life Point. It's such a it's a, such a vital part of who we are as Christ followers. There's unity that comes through community. Unity is something that we'll come back to again as well in a minute. The second thing I want to mention to you is the glory of God. In this first section, the first five verses or so, um, the word glory, glorified, is mentioned numerous times. Jesus prays for himself, and the focus is centered on the glory of the Godhead. The Son is glorified in the Father. The Father is glorified in the Son. Excuse me. Jesus says in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth, and he asks the Father to glorify him with the glory that he had before the world was created. Again, there's so much packed into the first five verses that I just, I don't have time to get to today, but the highlight to take away from this section is the glory of God. We'll see how that relates to us in just a bit. Thirdly this morning is unity. I mentioned a moment ago, Jesus' prayer here. He prays that we would be one. Unity in the church is a massive thing, it's, but it's not unity based on external factors. It's not, things, it's not based on things like socioeconomic factors. It's not based on personal likes or dislikes. It's not based on our hobbies or anything like that. Unity, as spoken about here within the body of Christ, is to transcend all of that stuff. It should, it should transcend all external factors. Our uniting factor is one thing. It is internal. That internal thing is the glory of Christ dwelling in us. So here we come back to the glory that was mentioned so heavily in the first part. That is what unites us. Look at verse 22. Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. The glory of the Father has been given to the Son, and the Son has given it to us. We have the glory of Christ dwelling in us. Spend some time this week thinking about that. The glory of the Creator God dwells in us because it's been given to us by His Son. His glory is the foundation for our community in this world. His glory is the foundation of life point. It's why we exist for the glory of his name. Christ is glorified in his disciples. He's glorified through his church. He says that in verse 10. He says, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. 
When you move down into the third section of the chapter, Jesus' prayer focuses heavily on the unity of the disciples. So not only is his glory the foundation for our community, our community is to be a reflection of his glory to the world. Verse 21 again says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. It was at this point when I was kind of studying the last couple of weeks, and maybe it is for you right now, I began to feel the weight of this prayer. A lost world without Christ cannot see God, but they can see us. They can see Christians. Jesus said if they see love and joy in the church, they will believe. If they see disunity, they will reject the gospel. So the question I guess we have to ask ourselves is, is unity within the church really possible? I think many of us may be skeptical of this because we've experienced disunity at some place at some time in the church. If we haven't experienced it personally, we've certainly seen or heard about it. The world sees this too. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this summer in Cardiff. He's not a believer. Um, He's very interested in why I have a faith, and he likes to ask me lots of questions. But one of the things that he, he mentioned this summer was, why all of the denominations? He said, why can't you guys get along? And I thought, you know, he's, he's got a point. Why can't we get along? As someone outside of the church, he sees the disunity in the church as a whole. Sometimes it, it almost feels idealistic to say that the church can be unified. But I want to suggest to you, if we throw out, if we throw it off as idealistic, or we say that it's not possible then we're essentially telling Jesus that he's too idealistic and he doesn't need to pray that prayer. Unity in the church is possible because he died to make it possible. I heard a quote this week, or I read a quote this week from Francis Schaeffer. Um, It'll come up on the screen, but he said this. He said, our relationships with each other are the criterion by which the world judges whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. In other words, the truth that we share with people, the truth that we present to people, the world judges that. They look at that and they decide whether it's truth or not based on the relationship that they see in us. How do we relate to to one another? Christian community is the final apologetic. And so this leads me to Uh, the fourth thing that I wanted to talk about this morning, and this is where I'm going to spend the bulk of my time, and that's disciple-making. In this chapter alone, the word world is mentioned 17 times, 12 times in just the last 13 verses. Look at uh, verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. He's praying for the disciples through which the world would come to know his father's love. The emphasis is on the end goal of making disciples. In verse 17, Jesus prays that the father would sanctify his disciples in the truth. He says, your word is the truth. We are sanctified by the word. This again shows the importance of the scripture 
the importance of this book and why we place such a high value on it here at LifePoint, why we study it. It's through the study of God's word that we are sanctified. The word sanctified means to set apart for a special purpose. We often correlate sanctify with holiness and that is part of it but the the word itself means to be set apart for a special purpose for a mission we often view holiness or sanctification as us being set apart to avoid things if you're holy you avoid things right you don't do this you don't do this you don't do this you don't do that if we avoid what we would consider the major sins in our culture then we think we're doing okay we're We're holy. We're good. But if this is how we view holiness, then does that make us, as the church, the only organization in the world that defines its success by what we don't do instead of what we do? Look at some of these words of Jesus here. Verse 11, he says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus wasn't asking the disciples to to go off and form a commune somewhere where they lived out their days. He was sending them into the world just as the Father had sent him. Verse 16 says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. We are not of the world. But we are in the world. We are in the place where God has called us to be. So we're not sanctified to avoid certain things, but in order to do certain things, to give ourselves in exclusive service to God and his mission. That's why Jesus says in verse 19, I sanctify myself. The ESV that I read from says I consecrate myself. It's the same word. He's not saying that he has to make himself more holy. Okay, he was sinless. He was perfect. He was completely holy. He's saying that he has continually devoted himself to the mission that the Father had given him to make disciples. <coughs> so what do we give ourselves to? We give ourselves to the same thing that Jesus gave himself to. We should be dedicated to the purpose of disciple-making for others' transformation. That's the task that we've been given. I listened to a sermon this week by David Platt, and this is what he had to say on this matter. He said, the reason we make disciples is because of others' sake. He said, I'm convinced that one of the reasons we have such a dangerous tendency to ignore disciple-making is because somewhere along the way, we've gotten the idea that the purpose of the church is to help us grow in Christ. He said, I don't think that's the purpose of the church. I don't believe the purpose of the church is to help us grow in Christ. He said, the purpose of the church is to equip us to help others grow in Christ. If the purpose of the church is to help us grow in Christ, then all of this, all that we do in this room is for the sake of us in this room and no one else. But we're not living for ourselves. We're living for the sake of a lost and dying world outside of these walls And so we dedicate ourselves to the purpose of disciple-making so that others might be transformed. Jesus said this. He said in verse 18, he says, The Father has sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
Look at this with me from another angle. We make disciples for the sake of others' transformation, but we also make disciples for our own transformation. When you look at verse 19, we find a picture of Jesus sanctifying himself as the disciples are being sanctified. Look at it with me. Verse 19, he says, And for their sake, I, Jesus, consecrate myself that they, my disciples, also may be sanctified in the truth. It's the discipler and the disciple being sanctified at the same time. So let me ask you this question. Could it be that the whole process of disciple-making, living for the sake of others, is actually part of the process of us becoming more holy? Let me ask it again. Could it be that the whole process of disciple-making, living for the sake of others, is actually part of the process of us becoming more holy. Until we take up the mission that God has given us to make disciples of all nations, we will stall out in our Christian lives like an airplane that stalls out in the sky. I was, I was thinking back this week kind of on my faith journey. I, I chose to follow Jesus as a young boy. And maybe this describes you. When I first chose to follow Jesus, it was like a plane taking off down a runway and lifting up into the sky. It's exciting. It's thrilling. It's a great feeling. And for a while, you know, you're going up and up and up and you're growing. And I was growing in my faith. But I wasn't discipled when I was a young boy. I didn't have anyone come alongside me and show me what it meant to be a disciple of Jesus. And so, you know, for a while, I'm growing in my faith. I started, but as I grew, I started to settle into that tendency that we talked about a minute ago, that the purpose of the church was to help me grow in Christ. My walk with Christ became simply about me, and at that point, I began to stall. When we give ourselves to this mission of making disciples of all nations, it will radically change our walk with Christ. Disciple-making will produce holiness in us. Now think about this. Do you realize what this means for us? We don't have to know it all. We don't have to have it all together. We've got to get away from our fearful attitudes that say, I don't know enough to share my faith. I don't know enough to disciple someone. You know what tends to drive me to the word on many occasions? It's questions. Questions that come up in conversation, questions that come up in a Bible study, for instance. It happened this summer with my friend Pete, who's not a believer, sitting across the table eating lunch together, and he's asking me question after question after question. And some of the questions I'm thinking, where did he come up with this stuff? But it forces me to look across the table at him, be honest with him, and say, Pete, I don't know. I don't have an answer for you. But I will look into it, and I will get back to you. That leads to searching the scriptures. That leads to deeper understanding. That leads to holiness in my life. 
Listen to what Paul said to Philemon in chapter 4, or sorry, Philemon's only one chapter. In verse 4, verse 4 through 6, this is what Paul says to Philemon. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And here's the, here's the thing I want you to really hear. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. As we share our faith, our knowledge of him increases. Our love for him increases. Our holiness increases as he does a work in our life. When we give our life away, it's there that we find life. I'll say it again. We go into the world because Jesus has sent us into the world, just as the Father sent him into the world. The great 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon once said this. He said, every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. What's a missionary? A missionary is someone who is sent on mission. We are all sent by Jesus. He gave gave us a mandate. He gave us a commission to go into all the world. Every believer is either a missionary or an imposter. Think about that. I want to introduce a new thing that we're going to start doing on Sunday mornings from time to time. We won't do this every week, but from time to time, I'd like to interview members of our church to find out how God is using them in their line of work and how we can pray for them as they seek to serve him and live out the things that we've been talking about today. And so we're going to do that this morning. I've asked Amy, um, Amy Weems, to come and join me. She'll be our first missionary of the week. Yeah. Um, so, Amy, for those who may not know you, can you please tell us your full name? I'm Amy Weems. And are you married? Do you have a family? I'm married. Josh and I have been married about 16 years. And well, it'll be 16 next summer, I guess. So 15. And we have two kids. Noah is 10 and Quinn is 8. Cool. There they are right there. Lovely family. Tell us about what you do for a living. What's your occupation? I am an assistant principal at an elementary here in McKinney. And how long have you been in public education? I have been in public education for 17 years as an adult. As an adult? Did you start out um, as a classroom teacher? Yes, I was a middle school teacher and um, did some other things at schools until I became an assistant principal. And this is my seventh year um, to be the assistant principal at Press. Okay, and you're working on your dissertation? I am working on my doctorate, yes. Dr. Weems. Not quite yet, but hopefully soon. get there. (laughs) All right. Um, Sorry, my pages got mixed up. Here we go. All right, so can you tell us briefly what it's like being a Christ follower in the public school arena? Public education is a challenging field to work in. I Sometimes people say that, you know, God has been taken out of public schools. I don't, I don't believe that. I believe that he goes there every day with me and with the other staff and our children who are Christ followers. But when I walk into work each day, I really have no idea what the day may bring because my job involves helping children and their families. And so 
it's kind of a whatever happens happens type of thing but I'm really thankful to know that I have a savior who's there going before me and with me every day I do a lot of the discipline at press and so that gives me opportunities to talk to kids about grace and love and forgiveness and you know for a lot of our kids that aren't being raised in the church they've never heard that someone might give them grace when they've done something wrong and um, so I get opportunities to talk about things like that and then as the assistant principal I tend to come into contact with families during times of stress or crisis like No one wants me to call them, right? But that's okay. That's just part of my job. But in that time of stress and crisis, I do have opportunities where I can pray for those families. And then I just try to be sensitive to those moments when the Holy Spirit opens that door for me to share truth with them. Obviously, as a public school employee, I don't, I'm not able to share my testimony and things like that just on a daily basis, but I just try to be sensitive to those moments when I can speak truth into those families' lives. So. How can we as a church pray for you, specifically in this area when it comes to being a Christ follower in the schools? I guess mainly that I will just continue to build strong relationships with our kids and their families so that when those moments come, I'll have that opportunity and that I'll be sensitive to that. I feel like a lot of times I'm just preparing the soil for seeds that will be planted later. I also would ask that y'all pray for the teachers, not just at press, but especially the teachers that are part of our body here at LifePoint, because teaching is probably the hardest job that there is. Um, we ask our teachers to you know, make sure everybody can read and do math, but also grow them socially, emotionally, and teach them all the things that maybe some of us were taught at home, but that parents aren't teaching at home anymore. And we ask them to love those kids unconditionally. So I guess also that we would see the students in our lives as Christ sees them and love them even when it's hard. And how can we pray for you, your staff, and your students this school year? Our kids at Press, um, some of them live in a part of McKinney that is very impoverished, and so they deal with a lot of the stress that comes from growing up in poverty. They're also dealing with things like families going through divorce and other crises, that, but mainly that they would have a hope. I, I believe that education gives hope for the future, but that only Christ can give hope for eternity. And so just that you would pray that myself and the other Christian people in public schools would have those opportunities to prepare that soil or plant that seed um, and then that it would grow. Awesome. Well, thanks for sharing. Can, can we pray for you right now? I would love that. Would you join me in praying? God, we come before you this morning just with grateful hearts for our teachers. And we thank you for Amy's testimony this morning, for the place that you have put her uh, for this time to serve for the opportunities that she has to speak truth into people's lives, to pray for people, to love on her kids and their families. And 
God, just as this school year has just begun, I pray that it would be a great year at Press Elementary, um, that you would do great things there um, through Amy, that you give her opportunities to, to share the love of Christ with kids and families and maybe even staff members. Um, God, that you would use her to draw people to yourself. And God, we do lift up all the teachers who are part of our church, um, who serve day in and day out across school districts around this area. And we just pray that you would empower them by your spirit to be bold and courageous in their settings, in their classrooms, to love kids unconditionally as you have loved us, to show them the love of Christ through their kind words and actions. And God, that you would use them to point people to the Savior. So again, we just thank you for Amy. Thank you for her testimony this morning. Pray your blessings upon her this school year, and particularly as she continues to work towards her doctorate. Thank you, Father, for your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much, Amy. So as I started preparing this sermon, it was all going to be about prayer. Looking at the amazing prayer of Jesus that we have here in John 17, as he walked with his disciples on the last night before he was crucified. And as I mentioned earlier, I quickly began to see that there was so much more to it, such a deep, deep prayer that he prayed. And I've only, I know I've only scratched the surface today, but as we wrap up, I do want to talk about prayer. And I want to tell you about how God's challenged me on prayer this summer. We had the opportunity to go back to Cardiff, Wales this summer for two weeks. We lived in um, Wales for nearly 13 years. Um, two of our girls were born there. Our girls were raised there. And when they had, we had the opportunity to go back for the first time in three years. And uh, it was an awesome time. Uh, we stayed with some really good friends of ours, Lee and Melanie Jones, Lee pastors a church in Cardiff, um, and we've known them for a number of years. They have three girls that are the same ages as ours. And we, uh, we arrived in London on a Wednesday morning um, after an overnight flight. Uh, we rented a car and drove to Cardiff um, that afternoon, arriving late afternoon, and exhausted but in an effort to stay awake, we went with Lee and Melanie and their girls uh, to their church's prayer meeting that evening. I walked into the sanctuary and found a room full of people. And during the hour that we were there, we prayed basically for two things. We prayed first for the body of Christ there at Gabalfa, and particularly for some of their, their needs. And then secondly, we prayed for people that they knew who were not yet followers of Jesus, who they were actively sharing Christ with. And this is what made me think about John 17, because... This is what Jesus prayed for. He prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for those who would come to know him through his disciples' witness. Anyway, it was a wonderful hour of prayer. Um, by the way, that's also where I got this idea of interviewing people in our church. They called it their missionary of the week, something they did every week in their prayer meetings when they would highlight um, one person and have them share about how God is sending them to a particular field. 
Excuse me. When we got home that night, um, I asked Lee if they had prayer meeting every week. And if so, were there always that many people there? And he answered yes to both questions. So the second week that we were in Cardiff, uh, we went again with the Jones family to prayer meeting at their church. And sure enough, we walked into the room and found a room full of people. Lee had asked me earlier in the day if he could interview me, and I was happy to oblige. And one of the questions that he asked me um, during the interview was how they could pray for LifePoint. They wanted to know how they could pray for our church. And I was really moved by the question. And as soon as he asked it, I knew exactly what I wanted to say. And I asked them to pray that as a church, we would become a people of prayer. (coughs) If we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that as a church, we are not good at corporate prayer. I know that we have some amazing prayer warriors in our church. But when it comes to meeting together as a church to pray, we fail. This church in Cardiff runs about 120 people on Sunday morning. Do you know how many people they average for prayer meeting on Wednesday nights? 80 to 90 people every Wednesday night. I don't say this to shame us. I really don't. That's not my intention here. I was challenged by it this summer. And so I say that to us this morning to challenge us. What might God do in and through life point if his people would get on their knees together in prayer? What might that look like? So this brings me to the last thing that I want to share, and that's something that an opportunity that we have to put this into practice this Wednesday night right here in this room at 7 o'clock. We're going to have an evening of prayer and worship. Mark Donahoe and R.C. Crosby are going to lead us in some songs. And we're going to pray for these two things. We're going to pray for our church, the needs of our people. And we're going to pray for those outside these walls that we know who are not yet followers of Jesus. And so I want to challenge you. Make time in your schedule this week to come join us at 7 o'clock on Wednesday night. Let's join our hearts together as the body of Christ here at Life Point, before the throne of God. Let's join our hearts together and let's pray. Let's seek his face. Let's pray.